we have spent half a year in this book or letter, or as I've been calling it, sermonic letter that we call Hebrews. So if you're doing math, if you're good at math, or if you're not good at math, I'll help you. Um, This morning marks the 26th message from this book. And if there's 52 weeks in a year, which I think there still are, um, half of our Sundays have been in this book. Uh, It was my intention all week to cover all of chapter 13 today until last night. Well, no, we would be here a little longer than even I want to be here. So, um, so uh, we, will, we will have this be part one of uh, today's message. Uh, next week, just want to let you know as well, um, Andre Robinson, who's um, a friend of Soma, has been here several times. He will be back to preach. I'm going to be across town at Spring Hills uh, preaching next weekend there. Um, and so Andre will be here. Uh, he'll do a good job. I will encourage him to slow down his pace just a little bit for us, for you. Um, and then the following week, Lord willing, I'll be back for part two, and we will wrap up uh, Hebrews 13 at that time, uh, and so forth. Now, I do want to ask this. Does anyone remember some 26 weeks ago, the very first thing we learned in that first message back on September 26? It's on the screen and stuff, but, but that's, that's, that's the answer. That's, that's definitely the Jesus Sunday School answer. Um, and so, yes, for sure. Um, but if we're going to be technical, the first thing we learned was that men are supposed to brew coffee. He brews. Oh, he brews. Nice. Nice. It is still one of my favorite dad jokes. But no, what you all said... Uh, is, is the answer. Jesus is greater because of his person and his work. Take a look at the screen, the opening four verses of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than there's, there's the whole book of Hebrews. And within those four verses, in fact, we, we saw in that first message seven truths. We're not going to walk through all seven at the moment, but there were seven truths about Jesus' person and work, about who he is and about what he's done. And it all gets summed up in our series subtitle, Jesus is Greater. And that's been his whole focus. Uh, he has talked about how Jesus is superior to angels, like we see right there on the screen. Of course, um, thinking about for, for these first recipients, they, they loved their Bible, which for them was what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. So they loved Moses and the law and the high priest and all of that. And, and all of that is good. It had its place, but it was pointing forward. It was looking ahead to Jesus. And so our author has been saying, don't run back to those 
old ways. No, you, something new has happened. It's Jesus, this one who is superior, who has become much more superior to angels, to Moses, to the law, to the old covenant, to the high priesthood. Uh, all of that, again, wasn't bad, but what he did in his once-for-all sacrifice, what he did by his blood is greater, is far greater. And so chapters 5 to 10, the focus was on Jesus as the great, greater high priest by that once-for-all sacrifice, by his, his blood. And then what well, we've begun to look at the last few weeks, at Hebrews 12.1, the author began to shift and to now try to apply all of that amazing truth. And that's really how a lot of the New Testament letters are set up. Romans 1 through 11 present all this great doctrine, and then at Romans 12, the Apostle Paul begins to now apply it and flesh it out. The book of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are these great truths, great doctrine, and then at 4, there's a shift to application. Of course, there's application in the doctrine, and there's doctrine in the application, but, but often in letters, this is how the authors communicate. And so at 12, with that great call to keep our eyes on Jesus, to fix our eyes on the prize, on the one who is at the right hand, uh, our author has been now starting to make application to all of this great truth. And as we then come to what is for us chapter 13, uh, and today we'll just look at verses 1 through 6, we are going to be thinking about in these final two messages what this all looks like in everyday life, or the way I'm, I'm putting it, if Jesus is greater, how do we live like we believe it? If Jesus really is greater, how do we live like we believe it? And our author has nine things. You can see why it was ridiculous that I thought we could do the whole thing in one sermon. Right? Nine points, right? Uh, but we'll do five instead. Um, uh, five. And so, but we're going to note nine over these two messages. Nine exhortations for how to live like we believe Jesus is greater. Now, now keep this in mind. This is a sermonic letter. So, so even though we don't know the author, this real person had in mind a real group of people. And as he wrote and gave these great truths about Jesus, as he wrote all those warnings in there, he had people in mind. He had a specific situation or situations in mind. And so he has nine specific things that, that he's going to flesh out. And we happen to believe 2,000 years later, looking back, that this is not God's word to us, but it is God's word for us. So there's application. And our job is to understand what was said to the recipients and, and make appropriate applications for us today. And so again, because Jesus is greater how do we live like we believe it? And we're going to see five specific things today. And then in two weeks, Lord willing, wrap it up. And then today, we're also going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I hope you all have your elements, and we'll make sure you get one if you didn't before we get to that in a little while. The clock says it's zero, 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 zero. So if I get going and it's like lunchtime, just let me know. But, but you know. Some of you think it's lunchtime now, and it's not. So, Yes, I ring the bell. Okay. All right. If you didn't already, please open your Bible to Hebrews 13. And as I said, we'll be in verses 1 to 6. Follow along as I read Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, 
for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Point number one, verse one. The first way that we live like we believe that Jesus is greater is right here in verse one. It says, Four words in English. Let brotherly love continue. Some of you are thinking about having brothers and maybe there wasn't a lot of brotherly love in your home. Let brotherly love continue, the author writes. Brotherly love is one word in the Greek. It's the Greek word Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia, the city that's known for being very loving, at least in its name. Philadelphia, of course, means combining these two Greek words, philo, love, and adelphos, brother, brotherly love. That's why uh, the founders named it that. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Let brotherly love continue. The NIV translation, I don't know if any of you use it, the NIV translates this verse like this. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. And that is spot on. This isn't just about brotherly love. Again, but the word by itself, Adelphos, means brother. Context helps us know that often it means brother and sister. In other words, it's, it's sibling love. It's spiritual love. We are too, as God's sons and daughters, love one another as spiritual brothers and sisters. And in all seriousness, we, we may not have had brothers and sisters. We may not have had a good relationship. But within the family of God, where as, as sons and daughters who have been adopted by God, our father now in this spiritual family, we are to love one another as brothers and sisters. This is a command for within the church. Now, of course, we're to love everyone, but, but under inspiration, the author of Hebrews said to his people, because Jesus is greater, one of the ways you live like you believe it is to love one another in the spiritual family or to love fellow Christians. It is interesting that he didn't say love, uh, love everybody. Uh, in fact, I think probably our author had in mind the words of Jesus, John 13, 35. Jesus said to his followers, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. By something I'm about to tell you, everyone will know that you belong to me, that you're a follower of me. What is it? If you have love for one another, if, if you love Christians, if you love your brothers and sisters. We are a witness to those that don't believe, to those outside the church by the way we love one another. To borrow a line from Toby Mack and Michael Tate and Kevin Max, DC Talk from way back, love is a verb. In other words, the author isn't saying, have an internal feeling of love towards your brothers and sisters. No, the idea is show it. Love here is a verb. This isn't about feeling 
that you love your brothers and sisters in the church, in the spiritual family. It's, it's saying do something about it. Show, show that you love. And, and our author leaves it. Verse two in just a second. He's gonna move on to his second point. And so it's one of those like, okay, well, how? Author of Hebrews, what did you have in mind? And, and I love that in this context, it's, it's left pretty wide open. So the question is for all of us to consider, are we loving our fellow brothers and sisters? For us right here at Soma, that immediately is us. The immediate application is those of us that have gathered today, those that can't be here today, but consider, who consider Soma their church. Are we loving one another? Are we doing things that show that we love? And then we can apply it out. Are we doing things to show we love other Christians, other brothers and sisters, those that worship at this church or that church in town or across the county and around the world? Are we loving our fellow brothers and sisters? Are we loving our fellow Christians? Good question to ponder and ask and to ask the Lord. Lord, am I, how, how ought I to? What, is it, what would it mean for me to, to practically do what your word is saying to do? When we love fellow Christians, we live like we believe that Jesus is greater. The second way that we live like we believe that Jesus is greater, my slides are out of order. Maybe I'm missing one. Is there one that has a verse two? Maybe it got out of order, Lisa, on my end. Well, apologies. Disregard that for a moment. Um, verse two, you can take a look. The second way that we live like we believe that Jesus is greater is found here in verse 2. A few more verses this time, or a few more words rather. Our author says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. One of the ways we show that we truly believe that Jesus is greater is by being hospitable to strangers. And it's very specific uh, here, in, again, in this context. It isn't hospitality in general. In fact, hospitality to strangers is one word in, in the Greek language. This word speaks of outsiders. Could be other Christians that are coming into town or, or whatever. Could you know, possibly even be those that aren't Christians. But this isn't about having your favorite family friend over for a movie night or game night and swapping, and the next time you go over there. And, and we tend to think that way, like, oh, if we have people that we enjoy over and we're, have, we're being hospitable, and yeah, there's a place for that, and, and there, you know, that means that. But, but this word, and this word comes up a few other times in the New Testament. In fact, and this is always convicting to me, it's one of the requirements for elders. Elders are to be hospitable, literally to love strangers, it's about being centered on others. Again, not simply having an enjoyable time with, with those that you have an affinity with. This word connotes treating a person, uh, again, often literally a stranger, with nobility. Inviting them into your home. In fact, in, in the ancient world, to be a Christian was rather dangerous. And it is that way other places in the world today. And so often in the ancient world, Christians would travel around and they would need places to stay. Um, scholars note that uh, what we would think of as, you know, Airbnbs or hotels were very expensive and so they needed to, to network and, and make connections and be invited in. 
to have needs met, traveling strangers who were maybe going as missionaries. The Apostle Paul, of course, traveled all over, and he had a cohort of people with him, and, and he needed people to be hospitable, to, to, to take care of strangers, and so forth. And so our author says, first, let brotherly love continue. Have this brotherly sister, this love for fellow Christians, but don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And then he makes this interesting point. He says, uh, as a way of sort of driving home the point, he says, by being hospitable, in fact, some have entertained angels. And probably our author who loves his Old Testament has in mind Genesis chapter 18. And again, in, in Genesis 18, Abraham and his family welcomed three strangers, gave them food and drink. And of course, two of them turned out to be angels, literally, the third was a theophany of the Lord himself. So very likely our author has, has that picture in mind. It is interesting. Let me just have you drill down on, on words for a moment. The word angel, I mean, we, we see that here in our English, right? As with so many words, that is just a transliteration of a Greek word. So angel in English sounds like the Greek word angelos, Okay, well, what does angelos mean? Well, it does mean the angels that, that are God's messengers. And so most often, when we see angelos, the word translated angel, in our New Testament, it is referring to those spiritual beings that God sends out to do his work. But literally, it just means messenger. And there are a few times in the New Testament where context tells us the authors aren't speaking about angels, like we think, but, but just a messenger. But, but this helps us understand. One of the things an angel does is brings a message from God. That said, back in our passage, while I do think our author has Genesis 18 in mind, okay, if you think about this for a second, if we are to show hospitality to strangers, what would we be doing? We, some, by doing that, entertain messengers unaware. Maybe you bring people in that are messengers from God, people that God's got something for you. Now, God very much could bring literal angels in our lives today. Um, Think sort of touched by an angel, if you remember that show from many years ago, sort of. Um, But God could do that. Just as God did it in Genesis 18, angels could show up and we, we may not even know it. But the point is, be hospitable. And as I said, I'm convicted by this uh, a lot. Um, My wife is very hospitable in in this way to strangers and to everyone. And and there's times when I want to just be in my house with my people. (laughs) Everyone else, stay away. And so I hear this. And and if I'm going to live like I believe that Jesus is greater than, than... this exhortation comes to me. And as I already said, as an elder, I'm told to be hospitable. And so I need to ask myself, am I showing hospitality to others? Am I looking actively, not just passively, like if, if they knock, well, then I'll be hospitable. But am I looking for ways to, to let people in? And some of you are so good at this. Um, and it can take many different applications but you, you make your homes available for people that, that have a need coming through town or whatever it may be. Um, but again, are we showing hospitality to strangers? And that's, that's specifically what 
verse 2 is all about. When we do, we live like we believe that Jesus is greater. Okay, to number three on the screen. The third way we live like we believe that Jesus is greater is found in verse 3. Our author says, Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and remember those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. We are to remember the imprisoned and the mistreated. And when we do, we live like we believe Jesus is greater. Now, again, specifically in its context, our author has in mind those that are imprisoned for the cause of the gospel, for for the kingdom of God. Not, Not people who are car thieves and go to prison. They should be remembered too. Okay, there's a place for, yes, uh, remembering everyone. And, and okay, But this is speaking of those imprisoned by implication for the gospel and mistreated uh, those who, are, who were beaten and abused and hurt for the gospel. And again, in the ancient world, it was dangerous. It was truly dangerous to publicly, in, in many places, identify as a follower of Jesus we don't have quite that problem here in the United States. It may get us made fun of. Uh, We may be ridiculed, mocked, um, insulted, definitely, uh, when we go public with what we believe. But for us, at least so far in our country, we generally won't be imprisoned or mistreated for the gospel. But there are people around the world, in other parts of the world today, that have been mistreated. Um, It's hard to see, but if you take a look, there's an app. I just downloaded it yesterday. This came to mind. Some of you will be familiar with Open Doors. You can't see that. It's way too small. Um, but that's what it looks like in the App Store if you use uh, an iOS. Uh, so Open Doors is this ministry that seeks to um, help the rest of us be aware of the persecuted church around the world. And literally, there are people in prison and mistreated because they name the name of Jesus. And it would be so good if we in our homes, individually, with our families, maybe got an app like this and maybe at dinner time or, or some family time, opened it and, and read through and prayed for a different group of people in different parts of the world that experience imprisonment, that experience mistreatment because of their belief in Jesus. To, to remember, it's obvious what the word means, right? Well, it means to keep present in one's thoughts. And, and one of the ways we can keep present in our thoughts, is to use apps, get resources, and and to pray, to pray. Uh, This was interesting. I read this week uh, of of this story from, again, um, uh, the the second century. Uh, In a letter written to the emperor Trajan by Pliny the Younger, who was then governor in a Roman province in the second century, uh, he wrote that many Christians... They had stopped going to pagan temples. They had stopped worshiping the Roman gods. And in an attempt to reverse this, Pliny the Younger told the emperor that he was to begin arresting Christians, throw them in jail. And in fact, he had some tortured and had some even executed. So again, how do we in modern times remember those imprisoned, remember those mistreated? Again, we can be aware, we can pray, uh, but we need to keep the persecuted in mind. It's easy to forget. It's easy to get caught up with what we have. And, and again, especially if you're a student, um, um, it can be risky 
on your campus to identify as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. Of course, some of you in your job, it can be risky. God says for us to remember, to keep in mind those that have it far worse than the persecution and insults and things we face. He then says at the end, um, and again, he's, he's strengthening his point. He says, do all this remembering as though you were in prison with them. That's another way we try to remember, like, what would it be like if we were in prison? I think about that. What if all of a sudden some authorities marched in and arrested me for standing up here teaching the Bible? Like, that happens in places. We are to remember. And then he, and then he says this at the end of verse 3. It's a little bit awkward in, in English. It says, since you also are in the body. Um, I, I like how the Christian Standard Bible puts it. That translation says, as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Um, in other words, as, as if we were in prison, as if we ourselves are suffering in our bodies, we need to remember. We need to be aware. And really, in a day and age where we can get online and know anything pretty much in a, in a moment, we, we can get apps and other things and know what our fellow brothers and sisters who we're to love are going through around the world and to pray and to remember uh, and so forth. So that then is the third way that we live like we believe that Jesus is greater. We remember the imprisoned and the mistreated. That's interesting. Verses 1, 2, and 3 have focused on how we live like we believe this truth about Jesus being greater in terms of exhortations toward others, right? Let brotherly love continue. Love fellow Christians. Show hospitality. Invite strangers in. Welcome strangers. Uh, Remember the imprisoned and mistreated. Those are all people that aren't you, (laughs) okay? He's telling you to do things for others. But as we now look at numbers four and five uh, for today, there's a change now to exhortations that, that speak of guarding our own lives, Not only do we need to live like we believe Jesus is greater by caring for others in these three ways and many more ways, but we're looking at Hebrews 13. We also need to look at our own life. It's not surprising Michael Kruger says that our author chooses to focus on what are probably these next two, the two most common idols that human beings struggle with, sex and money. And that was true in the ancient world, and it's true today. So let's look at the fourth item. Verse four. The fourth way that we live like we believe that Jesus is greater is found in verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We are to honor marriage and keep the sexual relationship within marriage pure. That is our author's fourth admonition, the fourth way his audience and we can live like we believe that Jesus is greater. Our text says marriage is to be honored. To honor is a word that means to esteem, to respect. It can can speak of someone or something. to to treat something or someone as precious, valuable, of great worth. Marriage is to be honored. 
and in the ancient world and today and all in between, there's many ways that marriage is not honored, many ways that marriage is um, not treated as precious or valuable and, and not shown to be of great worth, not respected, not esteemed. It could be, of course, through large numbers of divorce. It could be through even what our author mentions, um, adultery or unfaithfulness with people's marriages within the marriage. And, of course, it can be through those who advocate for other different versions of marriage. And, again, it was similar in the ancient world when the author wrote this letter. Um, Our author would speak of, and he speaks here, he identifies two things, and we'll get to those in a minute. He says, um, he's going to speak about the marriage bed, which is an idiom for sexual relationship within marriage. But then he says that God is going to judge the sexually immoral, that's the, the Greek word pornos. We've talked about that recently. Uh, it's where we get our English word pornography. And again, it's a very kind of generic word that, that covers anything outside of God's plan for sexual relations in marriage. And then he secondly says adulterous, which speaks just very narrowly about uh, unfaithfulness within marriage when, when a person commits adultery. But in the ancient world, um, the sex ethic, if you will, was, was not a biblical sex ethic, not what God had in mind here. Um, if you were part of our uh, Sunday Night Theology, the first two months we were watching a couple of lectures by Tim Keller. And, and Keller noted that historians have pointed out that the church, God's people, right, made an impact in the Roman world in at least five different ways. There's more, but there were five ways that God's people, the church, made an impact Keller notes, through quoting this author, that, that the church was multiracial and multiethnic. The church was highly committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized. The church then was non-retaliatory. It was marked by a commitment to forgive the way of Jesus. Fourth, the church was known uh, for having um, a strong and, and very practical um, stance, what we would call pro-life. They were very much against abortion, which in that context, was more likely infanticide, and the church very much took a strong and practical stand against that. And then number five, God's people had a revolutionary sex ethic. Revolutionary. Now, the Romans didn't necessarily like that, revolutionary sex ethic, but they were aware of it. Christians were distinctive in the way they viewed sex and marriage. Um, Mike Kruger quotes second century Uh, the second century writer Tertullian, who said this, one in mind and soul, we, speaking of God's people, do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us, but our wives. And again, that was his way of saying it. It's different outside of the church. We know the marriage, like it's different for God's people. It's different for God's people. This, this revolutionary sex ethic was such that in, in, in the ancient world, men could virtually do whatever they wanted. In, in the Roman world, men had wives, but those wives were there to, of course, give them kids and take care of the home. But it was expected that they would have mistresses, uh, and, and they could do within society virtually anything they wanted. And along comes the Christian that says, no, no, marriage, one man, one woman, now revolutionizes the sex ethic, not just for the man, but for the woman. And so if you read 1 Corinthians, 
The Apostle Paul says, within marriage, when, when a man and woman are together, uh, the woman's body is not her own, but belongs to the husband. The husband's body is not his own, but to the woman. And there's this, this raising of the value of, of the woman, especially within marriage, but a clear-cut boundary that, no, no, we don't live like that anymore. It's different. It's different. Jesus, in Matthew 19, would affirm God's original intent by quoting Genesis 2. Have you not read, Jesus said, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, let no one separate. So Jesus affirms God's original intent from Genesis 2. One man, one woman, that's marriage. Our author goes on here and speaks of, again, the marriage bed being kept undefiled or or being kept pure. And as I said, marriage bed is simply just an idiom, a way of speaking about sexual relations within marriage. In other words, our author is saying, look, marriage is to be held in honor. It's to be esteemed. It's to be respected. There's not to be adultery and and sexual immorality, um, especially within marriage. But notice that's the application. It's for each of us, for God's people, not to go out into the world and to start pointing out everyone else's sins, but to say, hey, am I treating marriage with honor and dignity and respect the way God intended? And if I'm married in my marriage, are we guarding the marriage bed and making sure that it is pure the way God intended? Some of you might remember in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul uses marriage as a picture of something bigger and greater. And so in Ephesians 5, wives are told to submit to their husbands. Husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And and it's this back and forth. And it's like the Apostle Paul is writing and he says, I'm speaking about marriage, but really I'm speaking about Christ in the church. But it's marriage, but it's Christ in the church. In other words, it's this parable, this picture. Our marriage is on earth. A man and a woman are a picture of this greater marriage where we, God's sons and daughters, are, are the bride of Christ and he's the groom. And so our, our marriages are to be a picture of this bigger and greater marriage. And that's one of the ways we, we honor marriages, when we make sure within our marriage, our relations are, are the way God intended. The text says probably the most unpopular thing, God will judge. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Boy, we don't like to hear that. And boy, our world hears that and thinks, oh, just like that's, that's just so, you know, ugh, judge, God judging. Well, again, there's this whole sermon of unpacking what, what this could mean, what it does mean, what it doesn't mean. It, sin is judged. Sin is judged, whether it's adultery or sexual immorality or lying or stealing or coveting, right? Sin. We are all guilty of sin, and sin is judged. And either sin is judged in us, for us, on the Lord Jesus, or or one day, if we have not received Jesus, we are judged. And I think in one way, that's what our author is saying. Those that persist in sexual immorality or adultery, they, by 
doing those things show that they aren't born again, they're not saved, and, and they'll be judged. But we have to remember, to, to do those things doesn't mean we lose our salvation or, or have not been forgiven, and there's always forgiveness, no matter what the sin is. If a Christian sins in these ways, just as if a Christian sins in other ways, if there's repentance and turning back to God and, and, and all those things, there's, there's forgiveness for, for God's people. But we need to let this verse stand. Let marriage, one man, one woman, be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed, purity within the sexual relation, be there. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. If it was true for our author to say that, then we need to hear this today and we need to be reminded today. Are we honoring marriage and keeping the sexual relationship pure? When we do, we live like we believe that Jesus is greater. Finally, for today, number five, and verses five and six, our author says this. This is another final way you believe that you live like you believe Jesus is greater. Keep your life free from the love of money. And that's important. It doesn't say keep your life free from money. We need money to function. The issue is the love of money. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And, and I, I want you just to listen for how, what our author does here. Like there, there it is. There's the exhortation. Keep your life free from that that idolatry to love money and want more, more, more money. And of course, in 1 Timothy 6, the apostle Paul warns of those who desire to be rich and the temptation that comes and, and how the love of money, again, not money, but the love of money can be and is a root of all evil. And here, our author simply says, keep clear of, of loving money. Be content with what you have. And, and then look how he grounds it. Always for him in some truth from the scriptures. For he has said, and this is possibly a quote from Genesis 28 or Deuteronomy 31 or Joshua 1.5. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Think about that. Don't have love for money. Keep your life free from it. For God has said he'll never leave you. What's, what's the implication? If you have God, you've got everything. One of my favorite songs you can ask Luther. I think we listened to it four times in like 30 minutes today. Uh, it's a song called Gyra. You maybe have heard it on the radio. Um, and the chorus talks about Gyra, which is a name for God, the one who provides. Gyra, you are more than enough, forever enough, more than enough. That's who God is. And God has promised that he'll never leave us. He'll never leave us. So we should be content with what we have. And then he goes on. Therefore, we can confidently say, and now he quotes Psalm 118, verses six and seven. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? In other words, hey, be content with what you have financially. Be content with your financial status. Now that doesn't mean, you know, you don't try to earn more, to, to make a living, but again, the concern is love of money, wanting to get rich. Be content because if you're a Christian, the Lord will never leave you. You have him. And that can lead you to say, since I have the Lord and he'll never leave me, he's my helper. I don't need to be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Well, they could kill you. They could take away your home. They could do a lot of things. The author knows that. 
but nothing of eternal stature. Doesn't matter if you lose it all, if you have the Lord. Practically, the way we use money is a test of whether we believe that Jesus is greater. Do we hoard money for our own protection because we're afraid of what we might lose? Do we spend and spend and spend, hoping that the next thing we get will make us feel better and bring us a sense of security? Or are we content, not afraid of losing money or possessions, but even able to give them away generously because we know we have something greater? Are we content with our financial status? When we are, we live like we believe that Jesus is greater. So, so this final chapter, our author has just jumped right into these practical ways we live out the implications of Jesus being greater. Five things he had in mind uh, for his audience and five things that we can apply in our world today. I, I want us, to, we're going to get ready to take communion in a few uh, if you don't have an element, just kind of raise your hand up and we'll make sure that someone comes along and, and gets that to you. So just, just keep your hand up. But I love, I just want to look at this Psalm 118, verse 6 and 7 again here. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can people do to me? <clears throat> that, that is only a promise we can hold on to, and it is one. The fact that the New Testament puts it there is a promise. Have you been looking for a promise? There you go, there's one. The Lord is your helper. If you are in Christ, if you've been cleansed and washed and justified like we talked about because of the life and work of Jesus and his person, then that is true of you. And it is the life and work and person of Jesus that culminated course, in what Jesus did on the cross when he declared it is finished. He finished the work that God had sent him to do, his, his perfect life of obeying God and then going to the cross to pay the penalty of sins. And so we have this, this meal, it's bread with juice, where we remember. And so the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, said that he received from the Lord what he also delivered that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, herself, then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. And so that's what we want to do. I want to just give us a few moments of space to, to talk to the Lord. Before we eat, before we drink, just, just talk to the Lord. And maybe you need to talk to him about what we just looked at. Hebrews 13, 1 through 6, these five ways the scriptures call us to live like we believe Jesus is greater. Is there one of those that the Spirit is, is nudging you in, shifting your thinking or, or truly calling you to a repent? Maybe, maybe it's there. Maybe, maybe it's somewhere else. But let me give us each a few moments of silence.
and then we'll take the meal together. So let's, let's pray quietly. Father, as we come to this meal, it's a family meal, and we've already thought today about being brothers and sisters. So thank you for this family meal where we remember the meal you instituted on the night that you would be betrayed and arrested and eventually beaten and eventually put onto a cross to die in our place, to, to pay the penalty of our sin. As, as the Father poured out his wrath on, on you in our place, Jesus. So we remember with, with this meal, not only that forgiveness that you paid for on the cross, and then with your resurrection, you were vindicated, but by your life, perfectly being our, our substitute. And we say thank you, Jesus. And we want to remember and eat in a worthy manner, we want to remember that, Jesus, you said you're coming one day again, and you'll eat this meal with your people, and we say, come, Jesus, come. We, we wait for that. We look for that. But now we, we want to eat and drink worthily, and so if there's been areas that you've convicted us, Spirit, I pray that we would be obedient and respond as you've called us to. Thank you for this meal, in Jesus' name. So let's take the bread side of this little chalice. Let's take the bread out and let's eat together. And let's take the cup side. And let's drink this together in remembrance of him, this symbol of the new covenant. And now I'll have you stand, and we are going to sing one more song, and then we'll get our children from their corner of the building. The Lord Jesus, there's, there's none like him. He is greater, and he is at the right hand of the Father as our great high priest, our advocate, and as we're going to sing in a moment, it's glorious. No matter what we're facing, the fact that we rest in the arms of Jesus Come what may. So let's pray and let's, let's sing this together. So now, Father, come what may as your sons and daughters, as your people. Come what may as we live like we believe that Jesus is greater. Come what may. And we pray for the grace and the strength and the faith to be who you've called us to be. We love you in Jesus' name.